Just a reminder, guys, that any of the views discussed by individuals on this part podcast are just views of individuals and do not represent the views of any organisations within which we work or represent. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Things We Find Interesting. We're going back to the Eastern Front. We're going back to Ukraine for another episode on um, this terrible but fascinating conflict that's, that's occurring in Eastern Europe at the moment. And we've got Matt back on. Matt, how are you? Really glad to be back. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the effects of winter on the war. Environmental effects famously having huge effects on, on how conflicts run out, and they're undoubtedly going to have huge effects on this conflict as well. Um, we've recently come from the Ukrainian uh, mud season, or the Rasputitsa, as it's famously known, which hugely slows down um, military mobility, uh, as we essentially have a kind of like wet season twice a year in the spring, and as we've just had in the autumn. And now things are starting to freeze, things are starting to um, get a bit more solid, but also get very cold um, there deep in Eastern Europe. And that's going to have a dramatic effect on the conflict, and potentially on the strengths and weaknesses of either side. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating thing to, to be able to understand um, what the effects of, of those, those cold temperatures are exactly on warfare generally, but also particularly in Ukraine. Matt, um, would you be able to give us a brief summary of kind of where we're at in the, in the war at the moment um, and sort of what some of the big themes are at the moment of the, of the front line? So not that long ago, we saw some significant changes on the battlefield where Russia was forced to withdraw from uh, the northern side of the Dnipro River from Kherson. Uh, this was due to pressure put onto its logistics chains, both in Crimea, um, but also along the south coast of Ukraine. Towards the eastern side of Ukraine, what we're seeing is a attritional battle ongoing, with both sides making limited gains, but taking significant casualties. This seems to be particularly prominent around Bakhmut, uh, where the Russians are throwing the regular army at the city during the day and then the Wagner group, the mercenaries who are much better equipped at night but suffering immense losses nonetheless. Other than that, the change from the mud that you just talked about, the muddy season, the rain season, definitely has seen a bit of a slowdown as there's been a switch from a more mechanised battle which the Ukrainians use really well around Kharkiv to make sudden advances onto a more artillery and infantry focused small gains battlefield and deep strikes now there's a chance as the ground freezes further we'll see a bit more of an open up of the battlefield and actually it's really interesting seeing that many sources have two different points where one that winter will just be a complete slowdown others saying that when it freezes we'll see a big advance but the freezing ground will give a few months until the thaw where in theory there'll be a bit more maneuver than there is now which could allow for some wider gains through mechanized movement once again yeah and that's going to be one of the biggest themes we're going to talk about the effect of winter it doesn't necessarily mean a slowdown it doesn't actually necessarily mean people sort of waiting it out until the warm summer months um you know that that mud has been massive and you saw you see that in the speed of of the ukrainians kind of counter offensives um essentially they've they, they've slowed as soon as it gets into that kind of rainy mud season and what we're talking about is Historically, Ukraine has been less of a, um, it's, it's historically quite, quite a kind of fertile region, so um, which, which tends to mean you have, you have a lot of farmland, but doesn't necessarily have, have the same sort of hard infrastructure areas that we'd expect in, in Western Europe with some of the same sort of roads. You have a lot more sort of like dirt um, and, and simple roads that essentially when you get to this muddy season where there's a lot of rain, um, the, these roads become impassable or certainly become impassable to, to heavy vehicles um the whole kind of theme there is that generally with military vehicles you'd expect a military vehicle that's got tracks something like a tank can pretty much go where it wants it's very very mobile those tracks um that it that they uh, that they afford however this mud is so thick that even tracked vehicles like tanks um struggle in in this kind of mud and and exactly as matt says we've seen a focus on it becoming a, a much more in the military they call it a fires based war so using aircraft mortars artillery rockets um long-range missiles perhaps are being used heavily rather than maneuver tanks infantry moving moving across ground and we've also seen fighting in, in the urban area because of course that's less affected by the 
by by the weather so yeah we've seen still a lot of um dismounted infantry fighting in places like curson because they're, they're not affected like that so it's, it's, it's a, a, fa- a fantastic example of where the weather and the geography affect how a war is fought in it in it to a huge degree um interesting also that that fact matt about the Dnipro river um great big river causes huge sort of dramas for military forces i don't want you to talk about that a little bit about the, the problem of, of, of big rivers like the Dnipro. Yeah, I mean, crossing what's known as a, a wide wet gap, um, which is, you know, a substantial river crossing. It's easier with smaller gaps because there is lots of rapid bridging equipment available that can be input either by hand um, or by uh, armoured vehicles. So there's lots of options there when you're talking about spanning something that's, you know, 20, 25 metres across as you yeah, start. A little across. tank can come in with a, with a bridge on, essentially sat on the top of the tank and then it can mechanically drop that over. Pretty quick little process really to get a bridge in place. Exactly. And then, you know, as you, if you want to do smaller movements across a river, clearly for light forces, there's the option of boats and these can access many banks providing they're not too large or steep. Or you may have the option of amphibious vehicles, but you then need to have the correct banks to be able to get that across. So when you've got a large, deep river that there isn't necessarily those options, it becomes a lot more tricky. And this is what the Russians were struggling with, even though they actually hold quite a few amphibious vehicles that can do reasonable wading or small swimming. Where they started to struggle was actually with the supply chains to support the opposite side of the river. That's what became really tricky. And... As they've withdrawn back from the northern side to the southern side of the river, what they've done is they've blown the bridges to make it even harder for the Ukrainians to then make that gain across. And if the Ukrainians do cross, which there has been some indication that they've made small crossings via boats, you know, to actually have a sustainable footprint on the other side where they can actually make gains and have a significant fighting force to the side, it's going to become particularly difficult unless they can establish a really strong supply chain. And that'll be difficult with the pressures on the air war. You know, there's a lot of anti-air weapons on both sides that control that space, but also not having significant road and rail routes to bring in those resupplies. Yeah, it, it all comes back down to logistics, doesn't it? You know, we talk about those bridges Everyone sort of thinks, oh, a river, you know, tr- soldiers can get across that. They could even, like, swim across, which they can. You know, you can um, float in, in the British Army, what they call a bergen. You can you can use that as a flotation aid. It's surprisingly buoyant, um, even full of kit, um, and float your way across a river and, sw- and swim across the river. Troops can get across um, quite a lot of stuff quite easily or, or with small boats. But it's that part of what happens when the massive war train of all the trucks bringing in the fuel, ammunition, supplies, weapons... How on earth do they get across this big thing? Um, and just the physicality of building one of these large-scale bridges is is considerably difficult because it, it it's so big that you can't carry it on the back of a on the back of a tank. You can't just drop it down quickly. It's a real kind of great big long thing that has to be built in stages. Um, so it's considerably difficult to achieve. And one of the things that's interesting about the Dnieper in this case is once you get a spell of around twenty days of sub-zero temperatures you know, that's when the river tends to freeze and actually it can freeze enough to get a light car across. Now, again, that's useful to some extent. And, you know, the Ukrainians have been good at adapting their forces to suit, you know, how the battle's working for them. But realistically, even if they took, you know, they requisitioned all of the cars in Kherson to start doing resupply trips across the river, there's only a limited time and a limited ability to support forces if they did cross that other side. So although there's an opportunity there, there's still a lot of difficulty in the long run that pontoon bridges, for example, just can't quite cover. Yeah, and and also, you know, God, it comes back down to rivers and bridges and things like that again. You know, this drive for Kherson, you almost might think, why bother fighting in Kherson? You know, costly in terms of casualties. Fighting in an urban environment is very costly in terms of your own casualties the enemy's casualties but civilian casualties very difficult way to fight in an urban environment why bother why not just box it off and leave them in there but it, it comes again if you if if this if this city of Ersan is, is sat on a big river the best places to cross the river will be in the city even if they've blown the bridges you're going to have well-established banks for to, to be able to put bridges in you're going to have the um the road and rail hubs going into that city to allow the, the logistics to get um to get to the place of crossing the river a city is an excellent place to cross 
um, um, uh, a large river and, and, and is one of the drivers for the logistics of, of, of a war of why they need to seize key places like Hassan. Um, but we, yeah, let, let's let's start talking about the different temperatures because I think it, it's really fascinating. Um, people would probably imagine a war on the Eastern Front as something that's absolutely freezing cold temperatures, Napoleon's retreat from Moscow, um, you know, people freezing as they as as they kind of like walk. Um, but that isn't necessarily the case. Um, and I think the first thing that will be useful to talk about is we'll talk about the different types um, of cold and the different levels of cold and their sort of effects. Um, and then we'll look at what are the actual like, average temperatures in that part of Ukraine at this time of year. So what are we expecting to see? Now, I think it's the US um, sort of Arctic warfare troops classify there as being five different kind of groupings of cold uh, and we'll go through those a little bit so the first one wet cold they call is um from plus three to minus seven degrees c next one dry cold is minus seven to minus 20 then we've got intense cold minus 20 to minus 32 and then extreme cold minus 32 to minus 40 and then finally hazardous cold which is minus 40 and below and the reason they group it into these different areas is because there's different behaviors and different ways that humans react or military forces are, are required to operate in relation to these temperatures, which I think is quite interesting. Um, which one do you think is the most dangerous, Matt, From uh, if we start off? What, what's going to be the most troublesome for troops? I mean, from my personal perspective, perspective, I've only really experienced the first two there. And actually, I often found that a wet cold even in a slightly warmer temperature can often feel much more discomfort than a dry cold which is a really interesting thing to experience when it's actually colder but you feel like it's more manageable um but clearly you know the colder you're going the more troubles you're going to come across as you have an additional logistical burden to deal with the problems that come with it well, that's exactly it, Matt. Is and that's the pit that people wouldn't consider. You might think, you know, the the warmer it is, the easier it is. But actually, there's a, um, certainly in the first three categories, we kind of experience a little bit of um, a, almost a, a little little valley. Wet cold is pretty tricky. Intense cold, extreme cold, hazardous cold. They're also, you know, just by nature of the, of the cold, are also pretty tricky. Dry cold isn't too bad. The second one, as 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 Matt clearly identified, and the reason for that are, are quite simple. At wet cold. We're in this cycle of, th of of freeze and thaw. We're getting a bit of rain, um, you know, in, in the daytime. Everything's getting wet. It's then going into the night. Temperatures are dropping and freezing again. All that wet stuff's getting getting frozen. And then, in, as the morning comes around again, it warms up, thaws, and we're getting this three, um, freeze thaw cycle. Now, this is particularly difficult for troops on the ground because the easiest way for troops to get really really cold and really suffer from the cold is to have wet equipment. Whereas as we get colder, as once we get start getting into the sort of dry cold area, things never really it's it's too cold for things to kind of um to, to get wet essentially. Um so essentially you've got a, a real difficult difficulty for military forces actually in that wet cold kind of space because everything gets wet and therefore you're gonna have a huge amount of effect. And as Matt identified as well, you know, just by nature of um there there being more moisture in the air in in the kind of wet cold area, it can actually wick away um heat more more effectively because there's more moisture more moisture in the air which is, is, is an interesting fact that you wouldn't necessarily think about yeah so let's look at each of these a little bit in in detail so wet cold being the first one where we're we getting this cycle between freezing and non-freezing temperatures and as i said this can be really difficult on on troops on the ground because things are wet equipment gets wet so that puts a burden on the logistics in the first place because you're going to need to potentially have spares of equipment for people so they can have a dry pair and a wet pair. You're going to need to have heating sources to be able to allow people to dry off their kit. You're going to be able to um, need all sorts of resources associated with preventing people getting things like trench foot. A huge problem, is, as we know of, of um, in the First World War, people sitting in, in cold, wet trenches. But also, it's, it's, not, it's not just something unique to the First World War. It's a, it's a constant problem that faces military forces today. And I know Matt and I can say from our own military training, it's surprising how much of um, good professional soldiering skills are just about preventing you getting in into a place where you get too wet, too muddy, too cold, and so that you cannot, you can no longer sort of take part in, in military operations. 
you know the skill set of changing your changing your socks having um good waterproofing drills not going into sleeping bags in wet muddy equipment um is is huge for the military surprisingly so i mean I, you know I, I reflect on my own time working the british commando forces you might imagine that what a, what a commando is going to be doing they're going to be training to run around with knives between their teeth um you know tackling people in unarmed combat and shooting whilst repelling out of aircraft at rafts repelling out of helicopters it's none of that stuff in reality the skill set that makes some of these elite forces better is that they can survive in these harsher conditions for longer so most of the training is about being able to survive when you're really wet and a bit cold and maybe covered in mud and all your equipment's dirty and how do you deal with that how do you administrate yourself under those tough conditions becomes the mark of like effective versus less effective um soldiering yeah, because it just enables you to become a less, you know, less of a logistical burden on the wider group that you're operating in, which gives you more independence to operate where, you know, the enemy may not be doing that. I think, you know, socks, really good point. Uh, I definitely suffered really badly with my feet. Took very little of my feet being wet for them to start to fall apart. Um, and actually, you know, for most people that haven't come from a military background, it's probably not something you think about too much because, you know, if you're out for a walk with your friends, for example, and your feet get wet, you, know, you go home, you dry them off, you dry your shoes out, you dry your socks, it's not a problem. But when you're living day in, day out in a field where everything is wet and muddy, this becomes tricky. Um, so one of the key things that I used to do was, you know, as soon as I get back, I always used to carry a spare so set of socks and a spare and a pair of Gore-Tex socks with me everywhere and some foot powder. So I'd get my boots off, get my feet out, give them a quick dry powder, new socks on, and then Gore-Tex Gore socks over the top. Those Gore-Tex socks then dry out your boots. And then once your boots are then dry, you can then work on drying the socks and the Gore-Tex socks that got wet during that process. And your feet are then secure again, good to go to keep going. And actually, if you don't have the equipment to do that, and you're constantly in and out of wet trenches, walking through thawing, you know, freeze-thaw fields where there's a mix of puddle and freezing water, you know, you're going to really start to see people really quickly with these really bad LSCIs, trench that's starting to fear, things like pitted keratinitis, which is a really horrible fungal infection that looks like hundreds of needle pricks in your foot. And I can assure you from having experienced it is very painful. Um, and that's just one little bit that, you know, if you administrate yourself correctly in that way, it'll make a huge difference. And, and, and this is the bit like, you know, an outsider might think of the war in Ukraine and think it's constantly people running around shooting, firing RPGs at tanks and things like that. The sexy stuff that we see on the videos online, the reality of most of it is the, the vast majority, 95% plus of the time is spent sat in a muddy hole waiting to do something or maybe planning to do something or, you know, administrating yourself to be prepared to do something. It's only 5% of it that we see really on, on, on the videos um and especially as we've talked about at the moment where it's become this fires war with both sides basically ch chucking artillery and rockets at each other um everybody is just sitting in trenches because it's the safest way to protect yourself is to be sort of um be, be concealed un un underground yeah so quickly the issues become about um how well can a force sustain itself because most of the time what they're doing is, is sitting there sustaining themselves from conditions that are trying to break them down um you know and and, it, and it's interesting to I'd, I'd love to see some of the the percentage casualties which probably haven't been published yet of how many troops become get taken off the line for combat related injuries um or issues issues that come from the environment and things like that but there's, a, there's a there's a huge percentage that come from accidents issues because of the environment i know it's a huge problem in them um, i thought again listening to some documentaries about the first world war the other day and it, and it caused a huge percentage of casualties back then um some stuff and then reading some stuff on the falklands war famously a war conducted in quite harsh conditions um but on both sides even the british side that was was seen as much more professional much more disciplined much more suited to the conditions there's a huge percentage of casualties that were down to just the cold, wet, and you know the distances that troops were removing. Um, so it becomes a huge factor in like what makes a professional army versus an unprofessional army. The professional army is the one that can survive the conditions and can just turn up to fight. 
you know it's not about when they necessarily get to the fight that they are so much better shots or so much faster or things like that they can just they they can survive the conditions and they can retain their combat mass whereas a poor force um would would degrade itself in the number of troops that it can it can still have in the fight or they start have to take start having to take um tactically unsound decisions they start to start to not sit in their trenches sit outside their trenches start cooking on open fires start living inside buildings things that aren't tactically sound for them to do and they just start behaving like a um a more poor force another factor i think is quite interesting is discipline uh whether it's self-discipline or imposed you know matt you'll be able to to attest from your military career it's really unpleasant to be made to get out of your sleeping bag in the middle of the night when it's the middle of winter put on your wet clothes and your wet boots and your wet socks and your wet equipment because they are wet because you've been marching around all day in them in the wet um out of the dry stuff because as, as i've mentioned before when we're, we're not going into our sleeping bags in in wet equipment because that would degrade the sleeping bags so take your nice dry warm stuff off put on all this horrible wet stuff and then go sit on sentry for a couple of hours and maybe repeat that a couple of times a night that's really unpleasant and people put really don't want to do that but obviously it's required to be tactically sound we need to be able to do that so quickly if we have an ill-disciplined force they're not going to do those things they're just going to give up they're just going to say ah we'll just leave it tonight ah nothing's going to happen so i think the effects of discipline is fascinating especially with the two forces we've got here um and how important it is of, of, of good discipline and good motivation for people to actually want to look after themselves in these tough conditions yeah, and imagine what it's going to be like, you know, for the conscripts coming in who have had little or no training from the Russian side. They're going to they're going to be the ones that are going to be most vulnerable to this. A lot of them are already going to have a questionable interest in their will to fight, or even if they are, they do have a will to fight. They just might not be aware of the realities of what they're going into, and it is a challenging situation to be in that can very quickly sap not just your morale but your it can almost start to affect your cognitive ability to think about what things you need to do. And once you sort of end up on that slippery slope and you start to, you know, not focus on the things you need to do just in general on the battlefield, that will then start to seep into those bits of admin that you need to do to keep on top of yourself, to keep you in the fight. And then once you then start going down that road that you've already had some impact, it's just like a, a, a circle that keeps going round and keep getting worse and worse until someone's able to step in and do something about it. And a lot of that can come through the people around you. So if you've got experienced people around you, professional soldiers, even if you aren't, they're going to make a big difference. But the other thing is, you know, being able to get away from those areas, being given breaks where you can get back to have some warmth in a building or in like a heated tent, for example, to be able to wash, to be able to have some hot meals. All of these things make a really big difference. And if you don't have access to those things, if you're being left for long periods of time, you know, unsupported, without the right training, you're going to be very vulnerable to these things. And not just, you know, there's somewhat human instinct tells you to do some things to look after yourself. But also sometimes human instinct will be trying to tell you, I just need to get in a sleeping bag. Oh, I just need to curl up. I just need to sleep. But actually, that's not the right thing to do. Sometimes you've got to go through something that seems incredibly illogical and uncomfortable and not what you want to do. But it could end up saving your toes it could end up saving your life. It could end up keeping you in the battle. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating one. In, in the US um, winter warfare sort of documents, they talk about how as people get cold, their natural reaction is to, what's the term they use? I'm not sure. It's, it's something like cocooning, where basically as, as human beings get cold, they tend to just cocoon and just essentially go into a mode of like, I need to conserve as much as much warmth as possible and just do nothing and just like huddle up. But essentially, you're, you're taking a kind of quite fatalistic view there and then saying, I'm not taking any positive action forward to actually change the scenario. I'm just sort of vaguely hoping for it to get better, which probably isn't going to happen. And a lot of the, you know, to be an effective military force, and as we say, just survive, you need to take effective action forward. You need to, you need to be doing something actively to, to make the scenario better. And you're right, you know, people aren't, people don't, their natural instincts are probably not going to be to do that. So they need the experienced veterans or the leadership to come in there and institute either discipline or encouragement for people to do that. I mean, imagine what it's like as a Russian conscript. You're turning up, you've maybe not got the right equipment. You don't really know what's going on. You've got poor leadership who aren't even there. 
and then you just and and the rotation thing as well you know there's been large reports of them being stuck on the front line for weeks and weeks on end and people have that image don't they like we've talked about the first world war already you know you join you join the army in the first world war and you were sat in the trenches for you know from 1914 to 1918 no no no. people would sit in the trenches for a few days and then get rotated through a series of, of further towards the line rear trenches and eventually they'd be out of the trenches you know recovering and this is day this would be a few days in the sort of frontline trench unless there was a big attack coming on so you know it's been proven through history that humans can be broken down by the environment pretty damn quickly um and they're just going to stop caring about doing the right thing if 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 um you know conditions get really bad so that's fascinating um and we've talked about uh, the next level of cold of dry cold and actually things get a little bit better conversely yeah. to what you think it gets colder but actually stuff is easier so I, I don't know what the lowest temperatures you've experienced are um i've not experienced anything really into dry cold i think during military training but actually instantly because of the military i have so i was based up in scotland for a while um and i remember very vividly walking to the gym in about minus 10 one morning um and you know actually it was quite manageable in the way that you know it was only a short walk so i wasn't outside long and i kept my skin covered i didn't even have many layers on to be honest but that was fine and again i, I went to canada with the military at one point and it got down to minus 25 but again i wasn't outside for too long i wasn't necessarily wearing loads of layers but my skin was covered and because i was dry and because i was getting some kind of warmth and i kept my skin covered and i wasn't touching anything metal in particular on a personal level it was actually quite manageable now to be outside for an extended period of time in that situation might be different but the other thing is once you get down to these kind of conditions it's not just affecting the people this is where it's going to really start affecting vehicles and things as well yeah and that's an issue as we move from dry cold into intense cold minus 20 to minus 32 yeah it starts to get kind of shit again um you know it's incredibly it's very cold for people they have to start wearing uh, people have to start wearing much more bulky clothes which means that even operating equipment suddenly suddenly firing your rifle becomes difficult because you maybe can't get the finger in the trigger guard um and as you say we start to get problems with vehicles as well so we, we hadn't really mentioned that in the wet cold but we talked about the mud already the difficulties that has for tracked vehicles let alone wheeled vehicles so all your logistics becomes difficult as it gets a bit colder the ground does firm up um and that suddenly we're able to drive again our, our vehicles which is why we there's this talk about potentially the you know the the, um, the presence of a new offensive in the winter um but if it starts to get really cold we get again problems with like oil f- freezing uh, yeah. oil freezing um, it's and loose. it's a real it's a real issue isn't it and it's not necessarily particularly with petroleum diesel oil etc you know that's not so much a problem that they're necessarily going to freeze but they're just not going to operate in the way that it is expected you know, uh, petrol in the uk for example freezes somewhere between minus 40 and minus 60 so we're not even near that yet yeah. but it is at the point already that actually it's not going to operate in the way expected so engines just might not start not because it's frozen it's just not operating optimally you've also just got to start to think think about you know when you're going to set off even if you know the engine does start you know the battery hasn't died the petrol and oil is all working fine yeah your windscreen is now frozen and that just means when you're planning to go out and conduct an operation you need to allow that extra planning time to get all that going and although once you're in and it's up and running, the heater, for example, can provide some respite for troops have been outside in the cold, you know, you might find that actually it's providing very little difference. You know, a lot of military vehicles aren't built to be comfy. They're not like your family car. And actually, even with the heater on, they're not always actually that warm. Um, so even if you can get vehicles started, it's still just more time you need to allow into your planning. Yeah, like everything's going to take longer and the logistics is just going to be so much more because well first of all we, we talked about people need more equipment you know if it's wet cold they might need different sort of like you know a couple of scales of, of equipment so that they can rotate between dry and wet if it's uh, even colder towards the sort of dry and intense colds we're going to need bulky winter equipment much more of that all that's got to be brought up brought up somewhere brought up from somewhere um 
and we're going to be using more fuel as well because people are going to be you know the guy in the truck is now going to sit with it idling to keep the heating on and suddenly that truck is is burning more fuel and as we know you know most of the military operations are spent with people sitting around we might need to put fuel in heaters to keep people warm we might need to start bringing warm food out to people to keep them sustained that's all got to be heated up that warm food's got to be brought forward which itself is more difficult to transport because you know it doesn't come in a nice ration box anymore um and that's the whole way along the supply chain yeah it's not just like there's that's a single point at the front line everywhere in the whole supply chain needs that and you know, you've got the additional issue in ukraine where so many power stations etc have been hit by the russians with missile strikes actually you know you're now looking at wider society in ukraine in a lot of areas is having this issue so actually rather than just keeping the armed forces going this problem is actually leaching into wider society as well which just provides another challenge where actually some of your rear echelons might be able to rely on normal national infrastructure to get set up and keep running so less of those kind of field resources are being burned further back well actually that's not the case for them they don't have necessarily that reliance on the critical national infrastructure to support them which then puts further pressure on the whole system yeah i mean this is the huge problem that you um you know we're talking about where the war is going and how it might sort of be shaped that's the key difference between the ukrainians and the russians the ukrainians are also having to sustain a civil populace which as we know have become more dependent because they've had you know the, the russian sort of strategic bombing campaign against um critical national infrastructure so they've got to keep a population also heated and you know fed um granted you know not as difficult doing that for people in an apartment block as it is someone in a trench on the front line but it's still a massive requirement that the state um has to be able to sustain um and yeah i love that matt yeah it starts to overcome a a growing and growing thing the more the more logistics you need at the front line the more people you need doing logistics and those people themselves also uh consume um logistics and it just starts to grow and grow and grow um yeah fascinating so huge logistic burden on both sides um which is why i think you know you look back into some of the conflicts of the second world war and winter offensives um armies have been more easy whilst they have been able to improve that they can conduct winter offensives they tend to be shorter in duration you know we tend to see a kind of like quick envelopment not necessarily quick but yeah relatively short envelopment of the you know the german sixth army at stalingrad the Russians conduct a big winter assault, um, 1941, I think. 1941? No, 1942. Anyway, um, you know, they, they, they surround Stalingrad, but it's a relatively short in, in distance and duration offensive. Um, it's only really once the, the weather warms up, logistics becomes a bit easier, that we start to see the long offensives over, over long distances. So I think there's the potential for attacks is there the potential for the follow-ups and, and kind of long extended maneuver perhaps perhaps not um yeah fascinating um so yeah we, we get into the kind of intense coal we need more stuff and again just for awareness we've got the u.s military does classify two more types of cold um extreme cold which is minus 32 to minus 40 and then hazardous cold um minus 40 and essentially what they're saying there as a kind of guidance to commanders is you know yeah, we can fight in dry cold if we've got the right equipment. Intense cold, we can fight in that if we've got real specialist equipment. Extreme cold, they're basically saying human beings go into survival mode. You should not be trying to fight when it hits minus 32 to minus 40. It's about just surviving. Um, and then essentially, you know, if you try to conduct military operations in that, people just aren't going to do it or are going to die um, from the conditions. And then minus 40, they're essentially saying troops out in the open even if they're just trying to survive would have a, there's a good chance that they'll just die because of the conditions so it might at that kind of hazardous cold that's when you're like you're almost like we're abandoning our trenches and we're going to go and find a, a building or something um which is quite interesting to see where and we'll look at the temperatures of um where ukraine is at the moment to see sort of what they're they're, they're looking at because if you l- listen to a lot of pundits online they're talking about you know, Russian troops freezing in their trenches. Um, I don't know. What, what's your thought on that, Matt? I, I think it's quite easy to throw out there that the Russians and the Ukrainians have got a lot of history of dealing with the cold. Um, I don't think this is a new concept for them, even the even how 
even with how ropey some of the Russians' performance has been so far. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of it comes down to is how prepared the, indivi- <laughs> the individuals are. Um, and I think when we mentioned earlier about the conscripts, if you've got a large number of conscripts that are potentially operating vaguely independently without much support and guidance, you maybe that's a possibility. I had a look at the weather forecast earlier, and although it's clearly colder than the UK, currently I wouldn't say it's that cold. Most days are, you can, you're kind of looking at minus three to minus five by a lot of it. Um, but that was in Kiev. I don't know where it's like on all the front lines. Um, so it'd be really, it'd be really interesting to see what, how well it's actually been managed. Because you would expect, as you say, both of these nations, given their geography and where they are in the world, to be far better prepared for this. But it's difficult to know about actually being there, and all you can go off is hearsay from reports. All right. So, uh, quick search on old uh, Wikipedia, and we're going to go for Donetsk which is, um, you know, a city pretty close to the French lines. But it is a city, so it could be a little bit warmer. Um, but they're recording in, we'll look at January, um, daily mean temperature of minus four um, with an average low of minus six, points, about minus seven, and an average high of about minus one. Um and again, records they're going as low as sort of thirty minus thirty two and, and plus twelve. So really, we're talking about a lot of wet cold, um, and maybe a bit of dry cold, which, as we said before, is actually quite tough conditions for people to um, to deal with. Um, yeah, I think that the other thing is if you look at it from just coming in and out of your house, you know, it's cold, it's slightly unpleasant, it's inconvenient, but when you're just constantly exposed to this temperature you know you'll know this feeling as well you day in day out the feeling just kind of keeps getting worse almost as the depth of the cold really starts to set in yeah and actually sometimes it can feel that it's just really difficult to get moving keep going and any little niggles and injuries and things you have they start to come out and actually being exposed to that temperature non-stop can actually be a, a real challenge well, that's it. And they say, you know, the easiest way to stay warm is to not get cold, which sounds like a bit of a flippant statement. But I think what they're trying to say there is like, you know, you get, as, as Matt said, you get to that cold where you've, you've properly get sort of your internal body temperature starting to go really cold. It's, it's very difficult to warm up. But actually, if you, if, you, if you keep on top of your drills and keep yourself relatively warm, then, then it's much more manageable. Um, I mean, it's a huge problem. Um, I'm also interesting to look at like average precipitation, you know, the amount of rain that we're seeing there. Yes, it's not as kind of um, as much as we see in, in some of the, the rainier seasons. There is still a decent amount, though. And I think that has an interesting effect on the conflict. We're not just talking about the troops suffering or, you know, the logistics of, of, of the roads, but also um, the use of kind of aviation and air assets. As we've mentioned before, it's been a huge part of the war, especially recent, recently. And we've all seen the footage of the of, of, of a lot of UAVs, whether it's the cheap little local ones dropping a hand grenade on a Russian trench or the real kind of like um, uh, bar- Barakter um, flying drones calling in kind of rocket strikes. And they've been used heavily in the battle so far. Starts to present a bit of a problem when we've got cloud, cav- cloud cover for most of the day. Um, I think we've got we've got something like eighty six percent of days having some sort of cloud cover, so a lot of cloud cover, which means that you know your ability to observe for things like fires is going to become more difficult. You know your ability to use thermal sites and stuff like that is going to is is going to become more difficult. Your ability of planes to fly in those conditions is going to become more challenging. So we start to see a little bit of a degradation on both sides of um of those sorts of assets, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and even with the larger assets that require runways for landing and takeoff, you know, that's a whole other piece of maintenance that needs to be done on the air support side that just isn't being done day to day during the summer. And actually with you know with runways, even when you're in the wet the wet cold season, it's not necessarily that much of a problem so providing the runway isn't icy. But, you know, the more cold, the more ice, the more snow you have, you know, the more challenging all that becomes. Yeah, yeah. And so it drives us towards whether we'll start seeing more of a, a slightly more of an infantry slog type 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 attack you know will, will we see the re-emergence of the infantry a bit more um with these new conditions um another one you know camouflage and concealment how do you deal you know a, a huge issue also for this um war where it's been heavily observed by 
um, aerial drones and, and aerial, aerial vehicles, how well are your troops kind of camouflaged? Um, well, it changes completely, doesn't it, in the winter? You know, in the summer, we've got lush, you can sit in a, in a, in a forest and you can't be observed. You can't be observed from, from the site. Your thermal signature is probably concealed. Well, if those, when, when all those trees start dropping their leaves in the winter periods, suddenly that forest is less of a, of a point of concealment. And the equipment that you're wearing as well, you're wearing green camouflage equipment, but now everything around you is white. So you stand up like a, like a sore thumb. Yeah, and especially if you're, you know, a big armoured vehicle. Yeah. Even, you know, one thing to try and hide the infantry, but when you're a big armoured vehicle with an engine that runs really hot, um, you know, if you're firing, that's going to release a lot of heat as well. And even if you're painted white, you know, you're a big moving target, or even if you're still, you know, it's so much easier to pick out something like that. You know, and the troops are going to be driven to doing behaviours that conceal themselves less, aren't they? You know, they're going to, if they're going to get cold, they might start lighting fires and things like that. Or maybe, you know, even when they're they're moving towards a position, they're going to be less inclined to dive down into the freezing cold snow and take the best bit of cover. They might think, oh, I'll just sort of like crouch a little bit. Um, so, it, you know, the conditions have a, have a, have a massive effect in, in, in that respect as well. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, we've seen on two different approaches um to how troops have been equipped in terms of uh, on both sides the ukrainians generally seen as having pretty decent equipment but it's a real hodgepodge isn't it because they've been donated it they've they've brought it in themselves they bought it from different countries so you look at ukrainian troops and they're wearing all sorts of different camouflage and really the only thing that's kind of you know letting them stand out is that is the the headbands and the armbands the colored armbands um that they're using but it looks like pretty pretty decent kit are they going to have the winter equipment there? Um, you know, the white stuff to put over the top of it, um, because there's going to be fewer countries in the world that manufacture that stuff. Yeah, the, Can- the Canadians, the Nordic countries might have loads of winterized fighting kit, but other countries just aren't because they're not going to have it as much. So the supplies of that equipment, I'm going to imagine, is to be limited. Um, and then the you know the, the Germans, the the, the Russians. Um, a lot of a lot of their kind of high level special forces are pretty well equipped. But we know that a lot of conscripts have been asked to turn up with their own equipment. So it'll be interesting whether the Russians have any kind of war stocks of of cold of cold war um, winter fighting equipment that they'll that they'll start bringing out or not. Um, I mean, they might even go for the old. Uh, I think what they a lot. Um, I think the Germans a lot in World War Two used to get bed sheets and they would cut those cut those out to make little smocks. For a, a simpler, effective way to adapt to the problem. And you know, that is one thing you've got to say the Ukrainians have been doing well. Um, you know, just that little bit of ingenuity and a quick reaction to adapt to the problem can make a huge difference. And um, regardless of whether that's a tactical thing um, or you know just a survival instinct. Yeah, so you know we've got a few themes there of essentially the difficulties in fighting in the winter period, but also a couple of the kind of freedoms. Um, Matt, what are you? What are your thoughts on on how this might, what we might see happening differently from the kind of stalemate fires battle that we've got going on at the moment? It's, I think the big thing it's going to come down to is, you know, how big a freeze hits Ukraine this winter. I mean, we can all speak from the weather that we've experienced here, and I think this has generally been seen on the continent that so far actually we had a very mild October, a very mild November, which is going to keep that kind of, you know, the wet cold we're talking about with lots of the issues of the mud much more prevalent that is going to slow down the battle, constrain vehicle movements to roads, making them much easier targets, making both sides less willing to do manoeuvre. If we had a big freeze, that's where something interesting could happen. We could suddenly have a month or two where manoeuvres back, back in a big way, um, and could allow some sudden significant gains to happen. And actually, you know, it's going to come down to who's got the right forces in the right places prepared to do that. So, you know, given Ukraine's previous manoeuvre in Kharkiv, perhaps they're in a good place for if there's a freeze to use their mechanised, not necessarily their, their wheel mechanised or their arm mechanised to make a big manoeuvre somewhere that could allow them to swing the battle. The Russians perhaps could more do with a more of a sticky winter where there's 
less going on just to allow them to build up their forces to conduct a lot of repair to build up the training to the new constructs coming in because they are just they have been on a little bit of the back foot of the conflict and it'll be interesting to see whether you know how the weather pans out i think that's probably the biggest variable that's gonna really strike this winter and make any difference to the conflict yeah yeah, I mean, I've read a few things out there um, online sort of saying people thinking that this could be um, this sort of pause in operations, that everything sort of slowed down a bit, could be the Russians essentially stacking up their troops to go on this winter offensive. You know, they've now got mobility back. They can go and kind of, the, you know, the Ukrainians have maybe outstretched their supply lines a bit, are tired from the offensive. This is a great time to counterattack. Um, and, you know, certainly that was the view of the Russian military um always having a kind of secret plan um before the war but i think this has proved this this conflict has proved again and again that the russians don't actually have a secret plan that they're just waiting to kind of bring out um they are just really struggling um yeah so there could be a bit of that it could be that the you know um that we just see this gradual offensive continuing continuing and the ukrainians putting more pressure but we've also got to tie into what the, the Russians have been doing at a strategic level, this strategic level bombing of bombing Ukrainian cities, um, infrastructure and power, um, and what they're hoping to achieve from that. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds dangerously like they're attempting some of the, what was thought as the, as the, as the war winning tactics of the 1920s and 1930s, you know, after the, after the, first, the, the structure of the first world war, a lot of Western countries are looking at ways to win wars that wouldn't mean that they'd have to send hundreds of thousands of young men onto a front line to, to churn each other up. And one of the ideas with the emergence of air power was this idea of the strategic bomber and that we will go and we'll bomb the key nodes of an enemy city, their power, their centers of government, um, and that will essentially cause the population to not want to fight anymore and to push their own leaders to sue for peace. However, it's never really worked. You know, the whole of the, we look at the whole of the Second World War, you know, the Germans bombing the British, the British bombing the Germans, the Americans getting involved as well. You know, the Americans bombing the Japanese. Um, the population is just, it, it just seems to have uh, galvanized support um, from the population. You know, the population feels that they personally have now been attacked and actually rally around their own sort of defense. And it, and it really just strategic bombing just hasn't really worked. Um, so it's an interesting that the Russians are going for for essentially a strategic bombing campaign again, um, because it doesn't have a very good history of being quite effective. Um, you know, people are quite unwilling to really overthrow their governments because the other side is, is punishing them quite quite hard. Yeah, so so I wonder if it, it's part of the whether it's actually a sign that the Russians want to want to sue for some sort of peace treaty during the winter period. You know, maybe they're maybe they're saying that as we talked about earlier, um, you know, the logistical pressure of having to keep a population and an army sustained is going to put the Ukrainians in a in a relatively weaker bargaining position right now and a relatively more dependent bargaining position right now during the winter months um than they were beforehand so it'll be interesting to see whether we 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 get a renewed drive for a peace treaty um coming this winter yeah i think think there's two things to consider is you know one is actually originally when they were targeting cities it did seem to be a little more you know just arbitrarily strategic bombing like you kind of talked about targeting cities in order to um change the populace's opinion towards the war there is one thing and you know it might not be right but it's I've, one thing i've considered is the fact that they're very much targeting the power infrastructure and part of that is probably to try and have that effect on the citizens to you know move the war one way or the other but the other thing is we talked briefly about how the rear echelons can often use built up areas normal national infrastructure to support their ability to operate on the front lines and by targeting the power installations around the country they do actually limit those rear echelons, you know, those supporting elements of the Ukrainian army to be able to operate more effectively supporting the front lines. So there is an element that you could say perhaps that what it is. 
Um, but clearly it's a very touchy subject because actually targeting civilians, which is the other way to look at it, is a war crime. Um, the other thing to consider is Angela Merkel recently came out and stated that the agreement that was set in 2014 for the ceasefire in uh, the Donbass, she now wonders whether actually the Russians just did that to allow them to prepare for a wider conflict, which is now ha now has happened. And what she is essentially suggesting is that actually maybe the Russians shouldn't be given way because you know they're going to be suffering through winter as well but it's also giving them time to prepare and they might just take this as an opportunity and i think we discussed this briefly in a previous podcast where i sort of stipulated that if we went for a, a ceasefire that may be more palatable for the globe it might just leave russia in a place to build up and then continue with its previous objectives knowing the resistance it's going to face and i think that's part of the reason that ukraine just needs to keep the conflict rolling and so pushing russia back yeah, I mean, you know, there's all this talk about these these masses of conscripts that have been trained up and, you know, lots of stories of them being sent to the front line with no training and no equipment. Um, but actually, that was only a very small percentage of that conscript force. The vast majority of them are still in Russia training, equipping, um, you know, which could hint that there's, a, there's certainly the, the combat mass there and a slightly more better trained combat mass being stacked up for either a spring and summer offensive um or potentially for other fights interesting um a fascinating topic matt um you know of course we don't know the answers here but we're just uh introducing hopefully for you guys as the listeners a few themes and a few areas of nuance around the concept of winter war fighting and the concept of uh winter war fighting in ukraine and how that might affect the conflict so when you're reading about the about what's going on out there you've got a little bit more insight into some of the difficulties that could be going on and, and how that might affect um behaviors and decision making um a fascinating topic matt thanks for coming on again hopefully you enjoyed your time coming on the pod yeah it's great to be back thanks for having me on um we've got a a whole range of different episodes coming up we're speaking to a few charities um we've got a little celebrity guest coming on as well um so stay tuned for the podcast over the, the christmas period period we're going to launch a load of new episodes and hopefully give you some listening for your long drives thanks everyone